This week on New Mexico in Focus, will lawmakers decide on a better way to redraw political boundaries? We talk redistricting. I thought everyone came with some expectations of the process being transparent and the way we worked as a task force. Plus, the return of our land as we examine how we name and rename important places. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Now, we've played it safe around here during the pandemic at New Mexico PBS, which is why it's always nice when we can bring you new adventures outdoors. We'll take you to the wilds of Grant's New Mexico later in the show. The line talks redistricting this week as well, as we mentioned. Our line opinion panel also looks at former Republican Phillips Anderson's fateful vote on that abortion bill. We begin with an effort to boost business for restaurants by making a change to New Mexico's liquor laws. Here's the line. Happy Friday, one and all. It is February 12th, 2021. I am Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS, and welcome to this podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus, the state's premier public affairs show. We've got so much fun stuff for you this week. Uh, As you heard there in the tease from host Gene Grant, we're going to head back outside, something that's become extra precious to us as we are, like most of you, locked into a Zoom world for most of our uh, show content these days as we look to outlast COVID-19. Some good news on that front this week with more states going yellow and even some into green for the first time as the case count drops a bit here in New Mexico, uh, which is good news. Uh, It uh, still leaves a lot of questions in terms of how things will be reopened and exactly when, but uh, the good news is we are heading in the right direction. We're doing really well with vaccines as well. But we uh, are joined by a great line panel again this week. As always, we have Laura Sanchez, one of our regulars, Merritt Allen of Vox Optima, and Inez Russell Gomez heads up the editorial page at the Santa Fe New Mexican. And we're going to kick things off on a legislative tilt this week as the 60-day legislative session continues to roll on in unusual fashion, again, because of COVID-19. But there's a lot of stuff moving through for sure. And several uh, bills, proposals that have to do with the state's liquor laws and liquor licenses. You've probably heard or read or seen some of the media coverage about um, delivery sales of liquor. This is something that especially bars and restaurants have been pushing for in order to help them survive the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic hit that they have taken. So the line panel is going to talk about that and then branch in a little bit into our licensing uh, process here in New Mexico, which can be extremely expensive for businesses owners because we have a limited number of licenses statewide. So let's kick things off right there. we got a lot more coming up as well, but here is Gene Grant and the line opinion panel. New Mexico's liquor laws, and maybe more specifically its liquor licenses, have long been a maze of rules and regulations that apply to one business, but not the next, depending on what license they hold. Now, one rule holds firm, though, no alcohol delivery. 
During the pandemic, many restaurants say that will let the air out of an already deflated profits. A new law could change that, but is it the right move? Our line opinion panel this week, attorney and regular panelist Laura Sanchez is back with us. Good to see you here. And two returning guests join us as well. Editorial page editor for the Santa Fe New Mexican, that would be Inez Russell Gomez. And owner and founder of Vox Optima Public Relations, that would be Merritt Allen. She returns as well. Merritt, staying with you. Based on what you've seen of this legislation, is New Mexico playing with fire here? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, this has been uh, uh, the messiness of our liquor license uh, regulations uh, has, you know, re resulted in one great thing, and that's the rise of the micro distillery. Right. Because if you make it on premises, you can sell it on premises. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Little Toad, Toad Creek in Silver City, probably my favorite example of this, uh, but it's uh, a trend that has really uh, uh, expanded uh, throughout the state. And, uh, you know, it, it's time to even the playing field. I think uh, the concerns of the existing old school uh, six or seven figure dollar uh, liquor licenses. Um, I, I understand their concern, but you know, this, as many people give the example, this is like uh, letting Uber into a market with taxi drivers uh, in the large metro areas uh, so much for uh, their medallions. Uh, I, you know, my thought is if you have an existing old school liquor license, you get excused from GRT uh, for a year. Ah. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Well, well, I want to come back to that because the whole, whole thing about the value of somebody holding a half million dollar or more liquor license and what that means now. Laura Sanchez, Reve, uh, Laura Sanchez, sorry, I want to get to something um, that I hear on the street a lot, and that is this idea that a delivery person is going to be standing at the front door of someone's home trying to determine if they are drunk or not to be able to hand them that alcohol. Is this actually a doable scheme in your mind when you picture this scenario? Um, I, what makes, I mean, certainly that's one of the concerns that I have about it. Um, there is a lot of discretion that's, that's required, uh, you know, delivery drivers often use this, um, you know, I know a lot of, uh, teenagers, young adults that, that do this kind of, uh, work. So I think we would need to adjust, um, the age of, of folks who are driving to deliver alcohol probably, um, and not just over 21 necessarily, but maybe, maybe 25, there needs to be a level of maturity, um, where you sort of have a lot more to lose um, if something should go wrong. So discretion, I think, will be very important. You certainly don't want to get into a situation where somebody's making an order and then their buddies are the ones delivering it uh, for later or something like that. I mean, it's just brought right. with potential um, uh, misuse and, and problems. So, But I, I think that all of those concerns should be addressed and um, there should be a process um, of empowering the uh, regulation and licensing department uh, to determine, you know, rules and regulations that could deal with that sort of um, a scenario and not necessarily legislate it um, so specifically. I, I don't think those concerns are a reason not to explore this option because I think it would be a huge uh, revenue, revenue producer for local businesses that have been hit hard. Um, and many of the upscale places, um, you know, do in many cases their own craft uh, um, distillery liquor or other wines or beers, and it would be a huge boon for them um, financially. Mm -hmm. Inez, um, interesting when you think about it, you know, it's hard to think this would be anything but a boon as Laura's uh, describing it for restaurants. Is this the clear ticket we think it is? Are we seeing this clearly? I mean, we have vaccinations going. We have a lot of things happening that may not 
necessarily make for home delivery you know, that impactful. How are you seeing this as it plays along over the next couple of months? I think once people can go out again, they're going to want to be sitting on patios in the summer having drinks and, and snacks with their friends. Mm -hmm. They're not going to want to get liquor, liquor deliveries at the house. So the impact may not be what it would have been had they been able to do it let's say six months ago. Right. And I, I believe the governor was hoping it would be considered during the special session in June. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if you're home late at night and you want a nice meal and some wine, being able to get it delivered is better than going out mm -hmm. uh, for some people. So it just seems like it expands your choices without necessarily turning it into something where people just drink all the time at home or, you know, are greeting you at the door drunk. You know, I, I'm really more interested in expanding liquor licensing because we created a system that protected people who already had right. while limiting the market to people who wanted to open up, let's say a nice corner restaurant, that kind of thing. And if you want, let's say an Albuquerque downtown where people from Netflix are going out after work to have drinks and dinner and walk around, it seems like more is going to expand the pie for everybody. So I, I think the, the the legacy liquor holders might want to think about what it's going to be like when dinner guests are ex, it's expanding. I, I think this is an opportunity to grow our economy so that everyone benefits. And yes, you might have to do something to help the people who invested more in their liquor license, but you're also gonna make it more available to young entrepreneurs so that the only people in New Mexico who are buying liquor licenses aren't big chains or people who've had them for you know 50 years. Which is the case as we have now. I mean, it would shock most people, the companies out of state that own New Mexico yeah. liquor licenses here would just you know big conglomerates. It's it's just not workable. Laura, you know the idea of someone being able to lay down three grand and you know get a liquor license as opposed to the folks that paid a half million. There's ideas out there to to lessen the blow, but can this really be done without a full and I mean a full accounting financially for people that hold licenses currently? Is a tax abatement going to work for them? I mean, there's all kinds of ideas out there. But we're talking about something they paid a lot of money for suddenly going to z almost zero or 3000 in value, if you think about it. Well, so I think that it's important to think about <clears throat> think about people who hold that liquor license as you know a piece of property that has value. But they've also had a lot of use out of that that piece of property. Hadn't thought about right? that. So, you know, there are also those that have multiple that own or hold multiple licenses and then, you know, may have a restaurant or something, and then they actually lease or license um, the other, the other liquor uh, license to another new establishment. Mm -hmm. um, those are, th that happens a lot. So we have this secondary market that's been functioning for a long time. Um, you know, there's value in the use of it. And so somehow there will need to be some consideration for that. Um, you know, what's been the use of it? You know, how, how do those people still retain it? But, in, you know, it's, it isn't just a static thing. Like we're not talking about something that you know increases in value necessarily, like the stock market. I mean, you're, the value is in yes, the market, but also the use of it. If you have a liquor license and you're not actually using it, you know, the fact that you hold on to it doesn't mean a whole lot. It's your ability to license it out to somebody else or to actually use it to open something that has its value. So somehow there needs to be a consideration of all of those factors 
in determining that process. Again, legislating something that's that specific, it's tricky because then you're bound by whatever's in the law. I, I favor you know, the broad strokes of a system and then empowering a state agency to deal with a rulemaking where you have a lot more time than 60 days to have input uh, from the community, from businesses, from others that would be impacted. Yes, thank you for getting that in there. Guys, we can't get out of this if we don't talk about treatment. Uh, Merit, you know, the idea of, of you know, holding, harm, holding harmless or you know, keeping people from harming themselves, that kind of thing. How does that argument fit into this whole idea of liquor, home liquor uh, delivery? Um, uh, to, you know, to Laura's point, um, it is probably um, impossible to get a perfect bill in 60 days. Mm -hmm. So some of this will have to go to um, um, uh, licensing and regulation uh, uh, bureaus. Y you know, it, it's, we, we have a system in place for over-serving and we have training that servers have to go through and pretty hard over on that. Um, I do think the delivery aspect um, certainly, um, you know, goes to, to the same thing. You first of all, uh, uh, you know, your servers uh, have to go through training, um, and so to be a driver for a, a, an entity that is serving alcohol and delivers alcohol, you'd have to go through training, which would add a cost. It might be more expensive. I mean, I, I would assume to have liquor delivered would be a lot more expensive than going to Total Wine right. or and buying a bottle yourself. And so that premium on that delivery bottle would fold in all of that training. That, that's a good point. I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I'm also curious what's gonna happen when someone decides, meaning a delivery person, decides someone on private property, standing on their own <laughs> threshold of their own home, decides they're too drunk to accept a bottle of wine or a six pack of beer. I, I, I don't know, we'll see what the court has to say, courtrooms have to say about that. All right, we're out of time on this, but there's sure to be more debate as these bills work their way through the legislature. Our land is next. All right, we teased it off the top, but it's time for our favorite time of the month. That is Our Land, which is our environmental series. And we've got a good one for you this month, as always, with correspondent Laura Paskus. Specifically, this week we're asking the question, what's in a name? And I don't know about you, but it's not something I think about often in terms of how particular landmarks um, physical features that uh, dot our landscape here in New Mexico, how they get their name. And in some cases, as we will learn, those names uh, represent a different time and place and may uh, actually be racist in nature or just not inclusive or representative of the communities nearby, especially in a diverse state like New Mexico. You're going to hear us talk about Mount Taylor, which is near Acoma Pueblo. But there are a lot of Pueblos that Look to Mount Taylor for lots of different spiritual, emotional, other reasons, and they have different ways to identify uh, that particular feature here in New Mexico. Uh, we're also talking to Representative Deb Holland. Of course, she is the nominee for President Biden's Department of the Interior Secretary, but we talked to her just in a role as representative of New Mexico and legislation she is pushing that would... Um, Bring people together to come up with names that are better suited to celebrate the natural wonder that are these uh, unique places in New Mexico. So without any more, 
we will turn it over to Laura Paskus and Arlan. Encourage you, if you enjoyed this, it's even better when you've got the imagery uh, that is accompanies it. So we encourage you to head to NewMexicoInFocus.org and click on the Arlan page or go to Facebook or Instagram and watch it as well. A different experience with that in there as well. And with that in mind, I want to shout out our director of photography and editor on these, Anthony Lostetter. He does an amazing job. Just beautiful shots uh, that we hope you enjoy. But here now, our land. We all have a connection to the place we live, but what do we call those places? And whose names are considered the right ones or the valid ones? In this month's episode of Our Land, correspondent Laura Pascas talks with the Pueblo of Acaba's Teresa Pasquale and also Representative Deb Holland about reconciling with the past and making sure places don't include racial slurs so everyone feels at home on the landscape. We talked with Representative Holland in late December before she was nominated to head up the Department of Interior for President Biden. Now, there's a lot to cover, and you can watch a longer interview at the Our Land page on nmpbs.org. Snap open a map and read the place names listed across the landscape. Those words, the place names on the map, they're decided by the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. The federal agency was created more than a century ago to standardize place names throughout the United States. So we all call places by the same names. But the world outside is different from what you find on paper or a screen. Just think of how you describe places. At the Matate in the sandstone. Meet me where the porcupines are. Let's hike the trail where you saw the hummingbird last summer. Here in New Mexico and across the United States, indigenous people have moved across these landscapes for millennia. And naming a place didn't mean claiming ownership. Teresa Pasquale with the Pueblo of Acoma talks about this. Our tradition lies in connecting those values, the things that we see um, our core values of who we are that are associated with place, that are associated with an individual, and then transferring our hopes, our prayers for that person or that place by giving that same name. And so as our people moved in on this landscape throughout time, then it also became important that our people, as they moved through their migrations across the Southwest, continue to not only remain connected to place, but also keep with them those values of place, those gifts of place, that creator imbued with those locations, to take those with us as part of our collective memory and carry those names forward with us as we settled into what is now the Acoma Valley. Carrying names forward is a sign of respect, a sign of connection, a way to guide people from the past through today and into the future. This connection is layered because of time, but it's also complex because it connects us not just to the physical landscape that we have that surrounds us, but to everything that is associated within that landscape. More than a decade ago, tribes came together to protect what's called Mount Taylor, west of Albuquerque, from new uranium mines. 
Each tribe has their own name for the mountain, their own stories, their own connection. I had one elder who explained to the U.S. Forest Service that the mountain, in a sense, was almost as if there was a blanket spread out from the top, that this cover not just the peak of the mountain, which many outsiders believe that the mountain was literally just its peak. From a traditional perspective, it also encompassed the mesas and the valleys and the valley floor, and that that connection began to be as far as the eye could see. When you're thinking from a perspective that forces you to define boundaries. That means not seeing a place as a single point, but looking at a mountain and seeing the mesas that swell from its hips, acknowledging the snows that fall, and in the spring flow to gardens and orchards, to appreciate the waters people drink and use in ceremonies. All of these things are connected, even if we seem to forget that today. Across our maps, there are also places with names that are racist, that make people feel unwelcome, like their stories don't matter. Last year, Representative Deb Holland and Texas Representative Al Green introduced the Reconciliation and Place Names Act. These places, they belong to all of us, right? They don't just belong to one person or one group of people. We felt very strongly that all visitors to our public lands and our public spaces, they deserve to feel welcome and comfortable while enjoying those places. These offensive and, and racist place names, uh, those are sort of relics of the past. Holland and Green feel it's time to reconcile that. If passed, this bill would bring people from all different communities to make recommendations to the board on geographic needs, to make changes that are respectful of one another. How some of our Pueblos have changed their names back to their original Native American names. I think it matters to a community of people what things are called. Each community should be able to decide a report last year found hundreds of federally recognized places with racial slurs. Some of those in New Mexico, some landmarks that are being talked about for renaming in the bill, Squaw Peak, Chinaman Hills, Jim Crow Shaft. Those are places I don't think that have any relevance essentially to maybe those New Mexico landmarks. Those bring up a racist past. And like Mount Taylor, named for the 12th president of the United States. Plenty of places bear the names of people who never loved or respected them, or the people living nearby. When I was in college, I had a professor who used to say, you can tell a country by who their heroes are. And who are our heroes, right? Are they folks who have stood up for underrepresented communities? Are they folks who have stood up and worked hard for vulnerable communities? Pascual explains that when we move through landscapes, we create our own stories and memories. And those are layered on the countless stories that came before. When we go out into place that we carry a responsibility to know more, to know about these places that surround us so that we can protect them, 
so that we can conserve them and so that we can also give that gift to others and say, you know, there was a great place I hiked, you know, on such and such a day, and this is its story, and I think you should go there. And so we pass those gifts on to other people. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Pascas. All right, let's head back to the line opinion panel now with more legislative news. This time we're talking about a bill that I'm sure you've heard about that would basically, uh, it ties up a loophole that would technically allow for the potential to um, criminalize abortions in New Mexico if Roe versus Wade were to ever be overturned. Of course, we know right now Roe versus Wade is the law of the land in the entire U.S., but this is a bit of an antiquated bill and has become a flashpoint on both sides of the aisle in uh, recent years. Most notably, we'll start on the Democratic side of things where some lawmakers who weren't deemed progressive enough uh, that didn't vote to uh, repeal this law were actually primaried and ousted in last year's election. The most prominent of those uh, folks was John Arthur Smith, a stalwart and head of the Finance Committee in the Senate. He ended up getting primaried out in part because of that vote and how some felt he wasn't upholding progressive um, standards. Uh, and uh, then a Republican went on to win that seat. So in the end, I uh, don't know if the price was um, worth it or not, but now we're seeing the flip side of that. We have Phelps Anderson, who has served in the legislature a long time. And he changed his vote this week when it came up in committee, the same proposal, and faced a lot of backlash, so much so that he ended up uh, leaving the Republican Party this week and changing his uh, political affiliation to decline to state. Uh, but the uh, scuttle around it has not stopped. There have been calls from other leadership in the roundhouse as well, even some constituency groups for Phelps Anderson to actually resign his seat since he ran as a Republican. Um, fascinating conversation here. This is an issue that really cuts both ways. And you're going to hear the line talk about how uh, one vote is one vote and how Phelps Anderson will likely still consider, continue to vote conservatively on a lot of other issues. But this abortion bill in New Mexico has really become this litmus test for where you fall on the political spectrum. And unfortunately, where your loyalties really lie. And we see that as carryover from the national level as well. So great conversation here, really interesting stuff. And let's hear more from Gene Grant in the line. Lifelong Republican and State Representative Phelps Anderson is still one of those things, but after voting to repeal an un unenforceable law that criminalizes abortion procedures, Anderson's Republican colleagues and Republican constituents seemed to think it was time for him to leave. Mr. Anderson won't resign, but he's changed his voter registration and is now the House's only independent. He won't caucus with Republicans. The law could only be enforced if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade in some way, but reproductive rights advocates say that's a real possibility with the latest iteration of the Supreme Court. And Inez, Mr. Anderson has been quiet about his decision to vote to repeal the law. And a reminder, he changed his vote from the last time this bill was in front of him. What do you think, what do you make of this dust up? <clears throat> I just wish he would tell us why. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering 
if he realized that now it is likely that Roe v. Wade will be overturned given the Supreme Court. So because it was real, he changed his vote or whether he met a voter or maybe someone in his family who said, here's why women need to have choices over their own reproductive systems. And I would just love to hear from him. Um, I remember when I was young that there were pro-abortion choice Republicans and anti-abortion choice Democrats. (laughs) And both parties seemed to have room for a little dissension on the edges, even if they did have a party platform that said we're against abortion or we're for abortion. And I think that big tents uh, can be tricky, but when there's room for differing views, sometimes you come up with better policy. And I'm sorry that, that really both parties are so limiting to what you can believe or not believe. I mean, Phelps Anderson isn't going to vote for democratic economic initiatives. He's probably not going to be uh, a big, uh, you know, voice against gun, uh, pro-gun things. So he would be a, a solid Republican vote, except maybe this one time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think parties might want to be more welcoming to different viewpoints sometimes. Merritt, pick up on that. Is there is there an opportunity here, or is there something for the Republican Party here in New Mexico to think about? Well, you know, certainly, um, uh, I think they do have um, a, a vote on key issues. Of course, um, the Republican minority in uh, the New Mexico House is pretty. It, it is it's pretty marked. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they they have uh, fewer seats almost uh, now more than ever. So. Um, uh, there's, there's really not a lot of impact unless uh, they build coalitions uh, across the aisle to defeat, defeat specific bills. Does the party uh, in some way gain in this situation? No. Okay. Um, uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think so. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't blame Representative Anderson uh, for uh, keeping his counsel. Um, I'm, and, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear. I'm not an insider to the state Republican or the caucus. Um, you know, you can assume um, perhaps he felt some pressure. Um, he voted uh, uh, He voted as he did. He has uh, changed his uh, uh, affiliation. Andy Nunez um, had done this in the past. Right. We have had uh, in the past. And, you know, I just want to point out, um, I am uh, going to disagree with Inez. I don't think that this bill, for the second time it's been brought up, I don't think this changes the state of abortion in New Mexico. I think this is political maneuvering. I think it's a pl- political grenade thrown. Um, I think the, certainly the Republicans have a decades-long history of weaponizing abortion. I think the Democrats have picked up on it. I think they're weaponizing it this time mm-hmm. uh, to uh, uh, weed out moderates or conservative uh, Democrats. I, I think it doesn't do much. Uh, it did uh, nothing in a 30-day se- session except make people mad. I think it's making people mad in this session. But I don't think this bill, whether it passes or fails, is going to change access to abortion in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Hey, Laura, I got to maybe it seems like an obvious question here, but don't Democrats do the same thing here? Isn't there a litmus test of a sorts with Democrats? I mean, even this particular bill uh, has been a litmus test for Democrats in their level of progressiveness so to speak. Is, it, is this the same thing, just other side of the coin? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we absolutely do that as Democrats. Um, and I think that we see uh, across the state, if you look at the last election and, uh, and those who were, who were uh, challenged in the uh, primary and then lost their seat 
and a couple which flipped then to Republican, you know, we're seeing the same sort of thing where there's um, a, more of a polarization, there's more of a push to become, I think on the one hand and the Republicans to be more conservative, you know, of course the influence of Trump and that happening across the country um, will, will have that effect. But you see the same thing on the Democrat side, you see this progressive push where, um, you know, groups from the metro areas that might be more progressive in terms of the voters going into rural areas and attacking incumbent um, uh, Democrats like John Arthur Smith, you know, and I know that district um, in particular because it's my home district, but, you know, John Arthur Smith was a conservative Democrat. He had done a lot in terms of fiscal responsibility, was beloved in that um, community. And then when he was taken out by a more progressive Democrat, it flipped Republican. And I would be surprised if it ever flips back, to be honest, because um, there's just, you know, there's just different flavors of Republican and Democrat across the state. And I think that, you know, to Merritt's point, we, you know, we do need to figure out a way to be more welcoming in general, or to, was it Inez? I can't remember who said it, but um, we need to be more welcoming in both parties. Otherwise, we're going to end up with this polarized and, and everybody's going to sort of just follow suit or be expected to, or else you're out. And the reality is we have to figure out how those representatives and senators reflect their district and not necessarily some agenda that's that's imposed upon them. So that's something that just, you know, I think is really important for New Mexico, given that urban versus rural split. And that I think is more uh, of a concern for me is ur rural versus urban and how polarized those issues become. The points there. And as you know, uh Laura makes an interesting point. The seat is fairly safe when you think about it. It represents portions of Chavez Lee and Roosevelt counties. You know, Mr. Anderson, he first got in in 2018, his two-year term, he was in the House from 77 through 80. You know, is there a danger of this seat going one way or the other? Does this upset anything particularly? I wouldn't think so. I mean, yeah. that's going to be a Republican seat no matter who holds it. Mm -hmm. And you know, what I prefer is, is that voters punish you if you stray too far, be, because part of it is polarization, but part of it is also being able to keep your promises. So if the governor runs uh, in 2018 saying, I will get rid of this abortion ban, which will change how abortions can be delivered if the Supreme Court rules against Roe v. Wade. Merritt is absolutely right. If there's no change right now. This is getting ready for what is likely to happen. Because should Roe v. Wade be struck down by the Supreme Court, there's a decent chance that in New Mexico, abortion wouldn't be able to happen the way it would and, and that it would criminalize doctors. So if you're saying as a party, this is our platform, but you have six or seven Democrats in the Senate who are then saying, we're not going to let you get to that. I think, you know, it's every bit the voters' right to say that we're going to get voter, we're going to get Democrats who will vote for that. And it's the same with Mr. Anderson. If he wanted to run again, then his voters would go ahead and say, yes, we support you anyway, or we don't support you. Um, but I think in general, it would be nice if there was a little more room for some differing viewpoints, not and not just on, a, on abortion. Think about early childhood. Right and how some people were more fiscally concerned and other people were more concerned about delivering childhood. So you just have to consider how big a tent you're gonna have. Good point there, Merritt, I see you in agreement there, pick up on that. It really is the voters who are gonna decide this, isn't it? Absolutely, and I, and I think in particular, and that's why I see 
um, abortion in particular is weaponized. And I, I just want to note, you know, the Supreme Court has been majority conservative for much longer than under the Trump presidency. Yeah. And they overturned Roe v. Wade. And in particular, the Supreme Court tends to not it's not their practice to overturn an existing decision. So that's why I say I, I don't think it's likely. I just wanted to put that out. But it is up to the voters decide. And the impression I get looking at polls is the majority of Americans and the majority of New Mexicans want abortion to be legal. And then on the other side, there are some procedures that maybe New Mexicans and Americans aren't as comfortable with. And on the abortion debate, it's either all or nothing. Right. And that's where people get polarized. And that's why I hate seeing uh, an issue like this. And I keep saying, get weaponized. And, right. uh, you know, this is the, the bill in question is one sentence long. It's repealing an unenforceable law. And everybody's just lost their mind over it. And it, it makes me sad because uh, to um, Laura's and Inez's point, there should be more room. Um, for uh, everybody to have an opinion on either side. And, and voters should also be able to have an opinion um, on either side and not uh, be uh, uh, somehow uh, ostracized for it. Good place to end that segment. That was actually really well done. You've probably heard us talk by now about the Your New Mexico Government Project. This is a collaboration we have undertaken with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter, and the, the support for the public media entities in that partnership comes from the Thornburg Foundation, and the idea is to twofold, really. One, to make uh, the things that happen in the legislative session and in the decision-making rooms in our state uh, more easy to understand, more accessible, more transparent, but also to just really dive into good government issues in New Mexico to make sure that we're all making informed and good choices at the polls, at school board meetings, you name it. And we have a segment now that's part of that collaboration, and it's all about redistricting, which is an issue we've covered a bunch. We talked about the problems with the way New Mexico has done that in the past. This process comes up every 10 years after the U.S. Census count is complete, and it is where uh, political boundaries are redrawn for legislative districts and state uh, legislative districts, and often leads to what's called gerrymandering. I'm sure you've heard that term, but basically I think one of the ways I love that it's described is where you, um, where the representative representatives uh, and elected officials pick their voters instead of the voters picking their elected officials. So deciding what would make your district more favorable to you based on its makeup and demographics, and then carving out the district in that way. We have a long and sorted history of it here in New Mexico, so much so that last year, New Mexico first set up a task force to come up with recommendations to do this more apolitically and more transparently, because a lot of this usually happens behind closed doors. One of the big recommendations from that group was to create a commission that would be appointed in a bipartisan fashion that would uh, work up um, maps, uh, a series of maps that lawmakers would ultimately vote on, um, but they could also have the ultimate say if lawmakers can't make a final decision on all of this and their processes and everything would be public and out there uh, in a transparent fashion. Uh, it has passed a committee uh, 
meeting this week, so it is moving forward. But uh, we also don't know, considering that you have all the New Mexico House and New Mexico Senate and the executive chamber all filled by Democrats, is there going to be the willpower to do this or will they want to take advantage of being able to run the table there a little bit, um, which again um, runs counter to the idea behind all of this, but we all know that political advantages will be taken where they can be gotten. So we got a couple of segments here for you on this. First, we talked to two members of that redistricting task force. One of them is the co-chair of that task force and then a member as well. That's with correspondent Gwyneth Doland. And then immediately after that, we will kick it back to the line table to get their thoughts and reflections on it. And we should note Merritt Allen, who's part of the line panel this week. She was also on that redistricting task force. So you'll hear her talk about her involvement there and how the process worked and what their thought process was. So what do you think? Give these a listen. Let us know. Do you think this is a good idea? Is this a way to go uh, in in the future to make this a more fair and representative process? Do you think it has a chance of passing in the legislature? You can reach out, give us your thoughts on that in a lot of ways. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, we're there, all those places. You can also reach out at NewMexicoInFocus.org, the website, where you can always watch every segment from each week's show as well. So a lot of great stuff there. Uh, Here now, we'll kick it off with Gwyneth Dolan and two members of the Redistricting Task Force. the area was represented because this was a common economic zone uh, was primary reasons for for my involvement. I also uh, represented the uh, Santa Fe branch of the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And so my interest there was in equity and uh, making sure that communities of color were uh, represented uh, in the uh, final majority I, I wanted to ask you that because you know if if for people who've been watching the national news over uh, redistricting the past few times it's very obviously been used through history to disenfranchise voters of color and even here in New Mexico the state has been sued for um, intentionally uh, or for having the effect of diluting the voting power of specifically Native American voters and Hispanic voters. Is there something more that we can do to ensure that all of those votes count the same? Well, I think one of the steps that we took uh, on the uh, task force was to include the voices of the Native American communities, primarily the Navajo Nation. Uh, I think you would agree, uh, Justice. Uh, so that we really understood uh, the interests that they had in this process and the concerns that they've had about being uh, undercounted, if you will, or underrepresented uh, in, in past uh, efforts to uh, do redistricting. Justice Chavez, some of the lawmakers who were on your task force are sponsoring bills in the legislature right now that would take the redistricting process away from politicians and give it to a commission. You know, for the past few years, we've seen some proposals like this, mostly through a constitutional amendment. How is this idea different? Uh, For one thing, this is more or less an advisory commission. And so the legislature still has a role to play 
they will have appointing authority and they will also select from three to five maps that the commission draws for the congressional seats, the state house, the state senate, and the public education commission. That's how it's different. It doesn't mean that in the future we won't uh, pursue uh, an independent commission that acts independent entirely from the uh, legislature, but that will require a constitutional amendment. And we can't do that in time for redistricting now in 2021. So what, what this would do is an, an advisory board would create the maps instead of just um, having lawmakers all over the place drawing whatever they want to draw and then kind of hashing it out. The advisory board would present to the legislature, these are your four options. Um, pick from among these. What if they can't decide? Well, we've, we have a provision in the legislation that says if they cannot uh, decide uh, which one to draw, the commission will have identified which one the commission believed uh, most satisfied the requirements of federal law, the Voting Rights Act, uh, preserving communities of interest, et cetera. And that would then be, be submitted to the governor for approval. So we, we have that fail safe uh, approach because frankly, the, the reason millions of dollars are spent on attorney fees and costs is because maps were not drawn, were not adopted. Dr. Page, was there, you know, in the atmosphere of your task force, did it feel very politically um, divided or did it feel like everyone was kind of on the, you know, the, the same page? No pun intended there. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I thought everyone came with some expectations of the process being transparent, at least in the way we worked as a task force. Uh, transparency uh, that we were uh, looking to uh, uh, ensure that all the voices of New Mexico residents uh, were included in the process of coming up with the maps as, as the justice just mentioned. Uh, so I didn't uh, sense that there was a uh, divide in terms of uh, some were for more uh, legislative uh, uh, oversight and input versus representation from the broader communities that exist throughout New Mexico. So I think transparency uh, was a goal that we all had in terms of how the process would work, uh, how uh, individuals would be allowed to have a voice in uh, expressing their, their preference for a map or another type of map. Mm -hmm. Justice Chavez, there's an unusual kind of mechanism in this proposal that gives um, a little bit of power to the Supreme Court. How does that work? What we did with this is you have to redistrict within the calendar year of when the census comes out. And uh, that hasn't happened in the past because of the appeal takes place after the legislature adopts a a plan or plans. And so what we decided to do was actually try to use the Supreme Court as the exclusive jurisdiction to take a look at what the commission has done if somebody appeals one, of the, one or more of the maps that, that were proposed. And so it, the appeal will go directly to the Supreme Court. It will be based on the record that was held between the, uh, the public hearings. And the court could only annul or affirm the map, they cannot redraw the map. 
and then they would send it back down to the commission. But keep in mind that three to five maps are gonna be recommended uh, to the legislature. And so if only one map is appealed, and even if the Supreme Court annuls that map, uh, there's still four others that uh, were not appealed and could be adopted. So we've actually added the appeal process before it goes to the legislature. And that's, that's very possible. If it doesn't happen, the Supreme Court would also have power to stay the consideration of the map that has been appealed. And that solves that problem. But I, I think the, the most, the key, I think to this redistricting commission is the fact that if you think about it, this is about giving voters a fair and equal opportunity to choose somebody who will best represent their interest. So it is them, the voters, who ought to actively participate in the drawing of these plans. And, and this act actually does that, requires a minimum of 12 meetings. The first set is to identify communities of interest, uh, minority groups that have a voting block, but the majority always uh, can outvote them. And so you look at the VRA, you look at redistricting principles, you keep communities of interest together and you learn all about that, you take that information and then you go draw maps based on, on what you learn. And you, you catalog the information and it's a record so that the legislature can see, so that the public has access to. Then you propose the maps as a rule and you hold hearings with testimony and then you use what, whatever you learned there to either tweak the maps that you had drawn and then go to yet another public hearing to adopt them. So the public knows exactly what you're doing. You have to evaluate the maps for compliance with federal law in the redistricting act. And everybody knows exactly what you've done and why you've done it. And, and what you're saying, it doesn't sound uh, shocking, but it is very different from the way it has worked in the past. Just so everybody knows, this mostly happens completely um, not in public. The, uh, that's the way it, it has been done here. But at the end of the day, Dr. Page, these maps are not hard to draw. I mean, a computer can just spit out a pretty fair map. Isn't that right? That's true. And, and we, we do have uh, software now. And we were on the uh, task force able to, to experience the use of, of some of that software to, to draw maps to, to meet the issues of, uh, or the criteria of compactness uh, and, and other um, criteria that we wanna achieve in terms of drawing fair uh, uh, districts. Uh, so one, one of the things that I think the task force uh, really came together on was making sure that we had maximum public participation in coming up with one, an understanding of the districting, redistricting process, uh, but also in how those maps could be redrawn to reflect their, the communities of interest throughout the state. So uh, the software is, is out there. Uh, there are several uh, uh, applications that uh, we know that we can get out to the public and uh, have them uh, come up with maps that represent the interest in, in their locales. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let me ask both of you, good government groups have tried for a long time to take this power away from elected officials and put it in the hands of some other 
less interested, less self-interested party. Why do you guys think that your plan has a, a better chance this year than, than those have in the past? I can't tell you that we have a better chance, but I will tell you that the way that this act is drawn, it not only benefits the public, it also benefits the legislature. Because the legislature in the past has gone out, they met with groups in different regions of the state, but then they get back and whatever was told to them is really not synthesized or compiled for them. And so they sort of ignore it. Uh, we are required, or the commission would be required to keep a record of all of the hearings, to summarize the information, to index it, to maintain it and make it available to the public and to the legislature. And not only that, when the maps are drawn, the commission has to evaluate every map in writing, summarize the justifications for the map, uh, summarize why it's keeping together communities of interest, why the map does not dilute minority voting uh, power, uh, why they are compact, contiguous, et cetera. So everything is gonna be provided to the legislature. And of course they can still hold hearings. People can show up and testify about why they support one of the five maps as over other maps, et cetera. So they, they are gonna be better informed. And frankly, you know, they don't get to choose who moves into their district or out of their district or what common interest now exists in their district. So it's important for them to adopt to a changing society. For the first time in 30 years, Democrats, can, they control both the legislature and the governor's office. And the path is very clear for them to gerrymander pretty hard. Um, why should Democrats give up that power now when they finally have it? I would say to avoid being sued for gerrymandering. Uh, that's that's yeah. the primary reason. Uh, and you as a public official should not think of yourself as somebody who has official power, but as somebody who is a public servant. You serve the public and you ought, you ought to honor our democracy by making sure that all people have a fair and equal opportunity to elect someone of their choice. That's, uh, that's the only thing we have going for us and a love for our country, a love for our democracy is what should guide them. And, and a commitment to the, the process of voting and access to uh, voting. Uh, so yeah, that's a, an interesting question. And I, I, I would agree with uh, Justice Chavez. Justice Chavez, Dr. Page, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. New Mexico's liquor laws, and maybe more specifically, its liquor licenses, have long been a maze of rules and regulations that apply to one business, but not the next, depending on what license they hold. Now, one rule holds firm, though, no alcohol delivery. During the pandemic, many restaurants say that will let the air out of an already deflated profits. A new law could change that, but is it the right move? Our line opinion panel this week, attorney and regular panelist Laura Sanchez is back with us. Good to see you here. And two returning guests join us as well, editorial page editor for the Santa Fe New Mexican, that would be Inez Russell Gomez, and owner and founder of Vox Optima Public Relations, that would be Merritt Allen, she returns as well. Merritt, staying with you, based on what you've seen of this legislation, is New Mexico playing with fire here? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, this has been 
the messiness of our liquor license uh, regulations uh, has, you know, re resulted in one great thing, and that's the rise of the micro distillery. Right. Because if you make it on premises, you can sell it on premises. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Little Toad, Toad Creek in Silver City, probably my favorite example of this, uh, but it's uh, a trend that has really uh, uh, expanded uh, throughout the state. And, you know, it, it's time to even the playing field. I think uh, the concerns of the existing old school uh, six or seven figure dollar uh, liquor licenses. Um, I, I understand their concern, but you know, this, as many people give the example, this is like uh, letting Uber into a market with taxi drivers uh, in the large metro areas uh, so much for uh, their medallions. Uh, uh, you know, my thought is if you have an existing old school liquor license, you get excused from GRT uh, for a year. Ah. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Well, well, I want to come back to that because the whole, whole thing about the value of somebody holding a half million dollar or more liquor license and what that means now. Laura Sanchez, Reve, uh, Laura Sanchez, sorry, I want to get to something um, that I hear on the street a lot, and that is this idea that a delivery person is going to be standing at the front door of someone's home trying to determine if they are drunk or not to be able to hand them that alcohol. Is this actually a doable scheme in your mind when you picture this scenario? Um, I, what makes, I mean, certainly that's one of the concerns that I have about it. Um, there is a lot of discretion that's, that's required. Uh, you know, delivery drivers often use this. Um, you know, I know a lot of uh, teenagers, young adults that, that do this kind of uh, work. So I think we would need to adjust um, the age of, of folks who are driving to deliver alcohol probably. Um, and not just over 21 necessarily, but maybe, maybe 25. There needs to be a level of maturity um, where you sort of have a lot more to lose um, if something should go wrong. So discretion, I think, will be very important. You certainly don't want to get into a situation where somebody's making an order and then their buddies are the ones delivering it uh, for later or something like that. I mean, it's just fraught right. with potential um, uh, misuse and, and problems. So, but I, I think that all of those concerns should be addressed and um, there should be a process um, of empowering the uh, regulation and licensing department uh, to determine, you know, rules and regulations that could deal with that sort of um, a scenario and not necessarily legislate it um, so specifically. I, I don't think those concerns are a reason not to explore this option because I think it would be a huge uh, revenue, revenue producer for local businesses that have been hit hard. Um, and many of the upscale places, um, you know, do in many cases their own craft uh, um, distillery liquor or other wines or beers, and it would be a huge boon for them um, financially. Mm -hmm. Inez, um, interesting when you think about it, you know, it's hard to think this would be anything but a boon as Laura's uh, describing it for restaurants. Is this the clear ticket we think it is? Are we seeing this clearly? I mean, we have vaccinations going. We have a lot of things happening that may not necessarily make for home delivery you know, that impactful. How are you seeing this as it plays along over the next couple of months? I think once people can go out again, they're going to want to be sitting on patios in the summer having drinks and, and snacks with their friends. Mm -hmm. They're not going to want to get liquor, liquor deliveries at the house. So the impact may not be what it would have been had they been able to do it let's say six months ago. Right. And I, I believe the governor was hoping it would be considered during the special session in June. Mm -hmm. 
Um, on the other hand, if you're home late at night and you want a nice meal and some wine, being able to get it delivered is better than going out mm -hmm. uh, for some people. So it just seems like it expands your choices without necessarily turning it into something where people just drink all the time at home or, you know, are greeting you at the door drunk. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm really more interested in expanding liquor licensing because we created a system that protected people who already had right. while limiting the market to people who wanted to open up, let's say a nice corner restaurant, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And if you want, let's say an Albuquerque downtown where people from Netflix are going out after work to have drinks and dinner and walk around, it seems like more is going to expand the pie for everybody. So I, I think the, the the legacy liquor holders might want to think about what it's going to be like when dinner guests are ex, it's expanding. I, I think this is an opportunity to grow our economy so that everyone benefits. And yes, you might have to do something to help the people who invested more in their liquor license, but you're also going to make it more available to young entrepreneurs so that the only people in New Mexico who are buying liquor licenses aren't big chains or people who've had them for you know 50 years. Which is the case as we have now. I mean, it would shock most people, the companies out of state that own New Mexico yeah. liquor licenses here would just you know big conglomerates. It's it's just not workable. Laura, you know the idea of someone being able to lay down three grand and you know get a liquor license as opposed to the folks that paid a half million. There's ideas out there to to lessen the blow, but can this really be done without a full and I mean a full accounting financially for people that hold licenses currently? Is a tax abatement going to work for them? I mean, there's all kinds of ideas out there. But we're talking about something they paid a lot of money for suddenly going to z almost zero or 3000 in value, if you think about it. Well, so I think that it's important to think about <clears throat> think about people who hold that liquor license as you know a piece of property that has value. But they've also had a lot of use out of that mm. that piece of property. Hadn't thought about right? that. So, you know, there are also those that have multiple that own or hold multiple licenses. And then, you know, may have a restaurant or something, and then they actually lease or license um, the other the other liquor uh, license to another new establishment. Mm -hmm. um, those are th that happens a lot. So we have this secondary market that's been functioning for a long time. Um, you know, there's value in the use of it. And so somehow there will need to be some consideration for that. Um, you know, what's been the use of it? You know, how, how do those people still retain it? But, it, you know, it's, it isn't just a static thing. Like we're not talking about something that you know increases in value necessarily, like the stock market. I mean, you're, the value is in yes, the market, but also the use of it. If you have a liquor license and you're not actually using it, you know, the fact that you hold on to it doesn't mean a whole lot. It's your ability to license it out to somebody else or to actually use it to open something that has its value. So somehow there needs to be a consideration of all of those factors in determining that process. Again, legislating something that's that specific, it's tricky because then you're bound by whatever's in the law. I, I favor you know, the broad strokes of a system and then empowering a state agency to deal with a rulemaking where you have a lot more time than 60 days to have input from the community, from businesses, from others that would be impacted. Yes, thank you for getting that in there. Guys, we can't get out of this if we don't talk about treatment. Uh, Merit, you know, the idea of, of you know, holding, harm, holding harmless or, you know, 
keeping people from harming themselves, that kind of thing. How does that argument fit into this whole idea of liquor, home liquor uh, delivery? Well, um, you know, Dolores' point, um, it is probably um, impossible to get a perfect bill in 60 days. Mm -hmm. So some of this will have to go to um, um, uh, licensing and regulation uh, uh, bureaus. You know, it's, it's we, we have a system in place for over-serving and we have training that servers have to go through and we start over on that. Um, I do think the delivery aspect um, certainly, um, you know, goes to, to the same thing. You First of all, uh, uh, you know, your servers uh, have to go through training um, and so to be a driver for a, a, an entity that is serving alcohol and delivers alcohol, you'd have to go through training, which would add a cost. It might be more expensive. I mean, I, I would assume to have liquor delivered would be a lot more expensive than going to Total Wine right. or and buying a bottle yourself. And so that premium on that delivery bottle would fold in all of that training. That, that's a good point. I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I'm also curious what's going to happen when someone decides, meaning a delivery person, decides someone on private property, standing on their own <laughs> threshold of their own home, decides they're too drunk to accept a bottle of wine or a six-pack of beer. I, I, I don't know. We'll see what the court has to say, courtrooms have to say about that. All right, we're out of time on this, but there's sure to be more debate as these bills work their way through the legislature. Our land is next. That's it for the show this week. We hope you enjoyed, and we appreciate you, as always, for tuning in. A couple notes before we go. Uh, today at noon, we held a great Facebook Live. We do this weekly, usually Fridays around lunchtime, but it can change a little bit. But we try to let you know on Facebook when these things are going to happen and what we're going to be doing. But host Gene Grant, he sits down this week with friend of the show, Michael Bird. He's been involved in the line a bunch, now based out of California, but we understand maybe headed back this way soon. So hopefully we'll hear a lot more from him in the future. He does a lot of work. His whole career is around public health, and he's involved with a article that's coming out in The Lancet about the spread of COVID-19 in the Navajo Nation. Uh, and it's something we've obviously covered a lot. We're going to be learning a lot about exactly where the inequities and the deficiencies were and how we can improve on that in future public health issues. But Michael's a great source on this and a great friend of the show. So we encourage you to go check that out on Facebook when you got a little time this weekend. We've got a lot in store next week on the show for you as well. On the legislative front, looking at some uh, proposals to change the tax code here in New Mexico. So be looking for that and a whole lot more. Until then, have a great weekend. Bundle up. It's going to be cold this weekend, especially the second half. Stay safe, stay warm, and we'll see you and talk to you again next week. Probably because the Super Bowl is less than a week past, I can't help a football cliche in considering the new numbers for COVID cases in our state. And with it, the yellowing and greening of counties across the state. Now, seeing positive numbers after a year-plus slog with metrics headed in the right direction, and even better, some blessed relief for our healthcare workforce. It reminds me that some games, as a cliche goes, are won in the trenches. 
Other contests, you can move the ball downfield, but not COVID, not this opponent. We're gonna have to grind this one out, guys, a day at a time until we can get vaccinations in arms statewide. Now that's the nature of this game, but I'll also add this. Maybe we've done something well here. Maybe we can afford ourselves a quiet little pat on the back for a job on its way to being well done. The numbers look that good.